0: You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. It's
1: almost three months until the first event in the 2022 Winter Olympics, but this week, the Stardust gun was fired on an entirely different but related type of Olympic contest. The Biden administration will not send any diplomatic or official representation to the Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics and Paralympic Games, given the PRC's ongoing genocide and crimes against uh, humanity in Xinjiang and other human rights abuses. The athletes on Team USA have our full support. U.S. diplomatic or official representation would treat these games as business as usual in the face of the PRC's egregious human rights abuses and atrocities in Xinjiang. And we simply can't do that. That's Jen Saki, the spokesperson for the White House, speaking at a weekly press briefing in Washington, D.C. Not too long after that came this response from Zhao Lijian, China's foreign ministry spokesperson, in his weekly briefing to the press.
0: Politicizing sport goes against the spirit of the Olympic Charter and damages the rights and interests of each country's athletes and the Olympic cause. If the U.S. insists on ignoring the truth and facts and deliberately uses lies to smear and attack China, it will certainly be doomed to fail. Not only will a boycott damage the U.S. own reputation and interests, but it will also face the opposition of the Chinese people and a strong response from China.
1: Not an athletic boycott, not a commercial boycott, a diplomatic boycott. When the Summer Olympics were held in Beijing back in 2008, the arrival of then-US President George W. Bush and his wife was proudly announced by China's state media, along with the arrival of the Australian Prime Minister and the leaders of more than 70 other countries. But as you probably don't need reminding, that was the before times. Before the US and China launched mutual attacks on each other over trade, technology, academic and scientific exchange, and before a pandemic swept the world and disrupted everything, not just for Chinese and American people. So what happens now? Welcome to Inside China. My name is Mimi Lao. In this episode, you are going to hear more about what a diplomatic boycott actually means and why people are talking about the 1980 Moscow Olympics. And you are going to hear more about the campaign to influence the major corporations who have huge investment and business interests in Xinjiang amid accusations of forced labor there. You just heard Gensaki accusing Beijing of genocide in Xinjiang. The Beijing government has consistently rejected the allegations of human rights abuses in Xinjiang. It says the huge camps that it has built there are for vocational training to support economic development and combat Islamic radicalism. In the middle of this comes the event that has been running every four years since 1924, the Winter Olympics. It's all downhill from here to February. So let's get a head start. Last time, our deputy sports editor, Josh Ball, was on this podcast. It was all about the International Olympics Committee and Peng Shui. Josh, good morning. Good morning. What is the update on this diplomatic boycott announced by Joe Biden and have other nations joined in?
2: What we know at the time of recording uh, is that the the US obviously announced their diplomatic boycott. New Zealand had previously said that they weren't going to attend uh, and they were at quite great pains to say that it was over covid concerns that's what they've done lithuania said that they wouldn't be attending their foreign minister said that there was a huge difference between not attending and a boycott so they've been quite keen to make sure that they're not seen as being part of the boycott i think obviously because of everything that's going on between them and china at the moment that's a decision they've made Mm. um australia has announced that it's boycotting and it has thrown itself behind the US, citing some human rights issues. So those are that's what we know at the moment. There's been suggestions that Canada is thinking about it, whether they do or not, I, I would say it's probably 50-50 at this point. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where we're at.
1: Okay. Uh, as a reminder for our listener to go check our website, SCMP.com, for the latest coverage. Okay. So, Josh, can you take us back to how Beijing was being chosen as the host of the Winter Games and the background of it?
2: The IOC won't thank us for saying this, but this is probably the games, the winter games, that nobody wanted. There were lots of cities and countries that were asked to bid for it. There were lots of places in Scandinavia that declined. I think, obviously, around the time in 2015, the financial situation, the cost of hosting the games is astronomical, and there were lots of people who couldn't afford it. The problem for Thomas Bach was that (sighs) he's German, and he really wanted it to be in his own country. But the Germans held a referendum and even they didn't want it. So the IOC was left with Beijing and Azerbaijan as the two as the two options. And obviously, China had all the infrastructure in place from 2008, a lot of which they've repurposed for the Games this time around. So that made a lot of sense. And it's, it was a great move for China, obviously, because it gave them the opportunity for a, a soft power move like they had in 2008. Hasn't quite turned out like that, but that was the thinking at the time, which is which is why we're now where we are.
1: So uh, let's get back to the boycott that is still unfolding. China's state media has been energetically posting angry responses on Twitter about this. And one of the comments has been that um, China does not want foreign diplomats coming anyway, because A, the event is all about the athletes, and B, they don't want foreigners bringing COVID to Beijing. Can you take us through what kinds of quarantine restrictions are being placed on the athletes flying to Beijing next year?
2: It's tougher for Beijing than it was for Tokyo in the summer. In the, in the summer, athletes were, it was suggested that athletes be um, vaccinated, but it wasn't a requirement. This time, if you've not been vaccinated, then essentially the athlete isn't going to go because anybody who turns up unvaccinated has to do 21 days in quarantine which with the training and the preparation rules rules an athlete out as it is when they do turn up they're going to be in a closed loop system so they're going to be tested every day they will be kept away from everybody it will literally be eat sleep compete repeat and that's that's pretty much it so it is much tougher this time around than it than it was in tokyo and and China's covid approach you you can kind of understand that they they want zero covid that's what they, that's what they're aiming for and this is ha- this is how they feel the best way to go about it is
1: so there is a lot of talk about national pride and the propaganda value for Beijing and hosting the Winter Olympics. But there's also a bit of pressure for Team China to deliver at these Games. Am I right that China only participated in half the events at the last Winter Games held in South Korea in 2018?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, China's um, China's history with the Winter Olympics is not one of great success. The, the most medals they've ever won is 11, which was 2006 in Turin and again in 2010 in Vancouver. The most golds they've won is five, which was in Vancouver. Four years ago, they had 81 athletes. They won one gold medal and competed in half the events. Like you said, this time around, they're in 29 sports and there's 480 athletes taking part. So they're really pushing it. And they're, they're really going for it. The The only sport that there was question marks over their involvement in was the men's ice hockey. That was resolved this morning where the International Ice Hockey Federation said, yep, China could enter. Um, there had been concerns that they would be embarrassed on the ice because there's not a great history of ice hockey in China. And so you have a lot of very, very good players coming from Russia and Sweden and Canada and the U.S., who China have been grouped with. And so if they were going to end up losing 15, 16 nil, it doesn't look good. It's probably not the sort of um, message that they want to send. But as I said, the hockey chiefs have decided that the naturalised players that China can call upon will do okay. And I, I think it was better to have that than to have the hosts not playing in one of the one of the major events.
1: And it's about participation.
2: Yes, The Olympic spirit is about participation, it's about sportsmanship, it's about all these things. And so, yes, they decided that China should take part in the ice hockey.
1: Has there been any talk of a full boycott involving athletes as happened in
2: 1980? No, no, and I don't think there will be. I think the general consensus is that the boycott in Moscow in 1980, uh, when 66 countries skipped, and then in 1984, when 13 countries also boycotted in retaliation, the only people who lost out then were the athletes. It didn't achieve anything that they thought it would achieve. It didn't really make any tangible difference to the political climate at the time but Mimi obviously with all the talk of the 1980 boycott what happened in Moscow it's probably a good idea if we remind some people what have happened some of our listeners might not even have been born then and we do actually have the man who wrote the book on the subject.
3: I am Nicholas Evans Sarantakis. I wrote a book on the 1980 Olympic boycott called Dropping the Torch.
2: So Nick is a military historian with several books under his belt but the full title of the book he's referring to is Dropping the Torch, Jimmy Carter, the Olympic Boycott and the Cold War. The first thing I asked him about was his response to Joe Biden's diplomatic boycott.
3: My first response was, who voluntarily takes a page out of the Jimmy Carter foreign policy handbook? President Carter was a one-termer for a reason, and uh, it's not exactly the best role model for President Biden to be following.
2: And given this is a diplomatic boycott instead of one involving athletes, I then asked whether this is the first diplomatic boycott of an Olympics.
3: Technically, no. Um, I just learned that Angela Merkel uh, refused to attend the opening games of the 2008 Beijing Summer Olympics. But the concept of a diplomatic boycott is kind of a... A contrived thing that's been invented in only in really in the last few months. Um, really, when you had Olympic boycotts, when you had boycotts of the Olympics, you had boycotts. I mean, with a capital B. Um, so this effort is kind of an effort to square the circle, if you will.
1: So what can he tell us about what happened in 1980 in Moscow? As you said before, just then, um, a lot of our listeners weren't even born then.
2: Yeah, that's right. So I thought it's probably worthwhile to recap the events leading up to the boycott of the Moscow Olympics, why it happened, how it came about. And this is, this is what Nick had to say about that.
3: Okay, 1980. Uh, in December, late December of 1979, the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan, to prop up a failing communist government. And it's in keeping with what they call the Brezhnev Doctrine, where basically they have the right to intervene in any uh, socialist state to maintain and support the revolution against counter-revolutionary forces. Um, At least that's their rhetoric. So um, the United States and a number of other countries find this uh, disturbing. uh, And President Carter quickly begins trying to decide what to do about this. Uh, An editorial is written in the Washington Post, and it suggests that a boycott of the 1980 Olympics would be a great way to force the Soviets to withdraw from Afghanistan and might even bring down the Soviet government. Um, President Carter has shown this op-ed, and for any number of reasons, that have to do a lot with bureaucratic politics within the Carter uh, administration. The idea catches fire and president Carter decides after about um, a week to go with this idea. He announces it uh, um, on the 20th of January. He basically issues an ultimatum and says, you have a month to get out of Afghanistan or we boycott the um, uh, Olympics. And uh, the idea was extremely popular in the United States Uh, initial public opinion polls show it somewhere around 80% popularity. So not a whole lot of ambiguity there. Uh, And then uh, the United States hosts the um, winter Olympics at Lake Placid and the hockey team wins a gold medal and uh, upsets the Soviet union in the process. Probably one of the greatest sports upsets in us history. Uh, And uh, suddenly the American public starts having second thoughts. Uh, public support for the boycott never dips below uh, something like 55%, but that is still a significant drop from 89, 79% where it was only a few weeks before. Um, After several weeks of lobbying, the U S Olympic committee is forced to basically hold a vote to go or not go. And um, they vote not to go. And, um, A couple other countries around the planet decide not to go, and uh, uh, the Olympics go on. A lot of gold medals are won. The boycott is generally a failure because the only two really strong Olympic sports powers that do not go are the United States and West Germany. The Olympics, ancient and modern, is primarily a phenomenon of Europe, with a few exceptions here and there. But most of the countries that matter, most of the countries that win gold medals, most of the countries that set world records, are in Western Europe or Europe. Let's just call it Europe because East Germany is a little weird uh, there. But and you obviously have exceptions with the Jamaicans and the Kenyans, and you know Australia, you know, does well in swimming and all this sort of stuff. But um, that's kind of where it falls. So not many countries in the end that really are important. Uh, boycott Um, same number a comparable number of world records are set in moscow that are set in um, montreal four years before and the same number roughly set in los angeles four years later so i argue that the olympics kind of have a magic all their own and the attitude of most people in moscow was we're having a party it's we're having a blast it's too bad the americans aren't here but it's their loss Which, by the way, is pretty much the same attitude the Americans have four years later in Los Angeles. And that always kind of made me wonder, well, what happened four years earlier? Are the Americans just so that important to the Olympics? And the answer is no, not really. No one's that important. So that's, in a nutshell, the story of the 1980 Olympics.
2: Mimi, uh, actually, I had one more thing to ask, Nick, which was I was curious to find out how much this boycott actually meant to the average American.
3: Being hostile towards the PRC or being anti-PRC or being anti-communist party of China is not a um, partisan thing in the United States. It's a bipartisan thing. It's easy to get Republicans and Democrats to agree on that, be whatever it is. And people calling for the boycott have been on the right and the left, or at least what passes for the right and the left in the United States. So this has been very popular with the United States. I don't think Biden is going to suffer Uh, for this Uh, the other thing to remember is the olympic community is quite small you're only talking probably a few thousand people in the united states and you know there's 330 uh, million americans so not a big group and then you add on top of this that winter sports are not big in the united states i mean we certainly have places like colorado and utah where people do a lot of skiing and Um, uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin, where people play ice hockey all the time. But for the most part, you know, people living in Alabama, Georgia, you know, Arizona, they're not following, you know, the standings of the women's luge team. So this is uh, something that you know, will not really blow back in his face. What I tried to say earlier was President Biden seems to be trying to square the circle in the sense that he wants to make a stand but doesn't want to sacrifice these athletes, many of whom have really sacrificed a lot to compete for a sport compete in a sport to represent their country, and who are not really going to get hit huge paydays when it's over. This is not what Americans consider a big time professional sport. It's not baseball, basketball, American football. So these are people who you know, have sacrificed a great deal. This might be their only shot. And uh, President Biden is trying to make a stand. The fate of nation states is driven by much bigger issues than who wins a gold medal. The Olympics then, the Olympics in 1980, the Olympics in Beijing right now, are a sports festival, a two week long sports festival Wrapped up in the garb of ancient Greece. Okay, uh, a lot of people, a lot of people on the IOC like to say the Olympics is about bringing the world together and you know helping other other people understand each other. Okay, there actually might be a little something to that, a little. But they make an argument, and it's a good one. To hold the Olympics, we actually have to hold the Olympics, and we have to invite everyone, and there can't be political list, litmus tests. If there are, then there will be all sorts of political issues. And there have been all sorts of political issues throughout the history of the Olympics. Almost every, no, not almost every, half of all summer Olympics have been the subject of some sort of political action. Many boycotts. People forget that the 64 Tokyo Olympics were boycotted. Uh, it was by two countries, so who cares? Um, people forget that in the 1988 Seoul Olympics were boycotted again. Two countries, who cares? Um, but there have been other et- disputes. Should there be two German teams? Uh, should there be two Korean teams? What uh, name does Chi- uh, Taiwan get to use? That's been a huge dispute. Uh, well, since the Chinese Civil War, so. There are other disputes about should Czechoslovak should the Czechs compete as part of the Austria-Hungarian Empire? Can Ireland enter a separate team, or do they have to compete with Great Britain? And a lot of these issues are things that don't matter to us because you know they're way old. You know, are Canadians British, or should they compete on their own team? Well, that's been resolved a long time ago. Um, but there's always some kind of political issue. So the IOC is kind of right in the sense to say. We have to have the Olympics. We can't have political litmus tests on who who comes. With that said, they are really tone deaf and blind to some of the current political realities. And picking Beijing to host the Winter Olympics was a bad idea at the time. So
1: Josh, we talked about the history of boycott back in 1980. What about the current boycott? Have you heard anything from the commercial sponsors of this current Olympic Games that is due to be held in February in Beijing?
2: No, and I don't think you will. I think that um, they're all trying to tread a very fine line, uh, serving two markets, obviously in the US and in China. China's market for a lot of them is bigger than the domestic market in the US, which makes a difference to their bottom line. You only have to look at the ongoing Peng Shui issue and the complete silence coming from Adidas, Porsche, SAP, to see that you're probably not going to get any comment from the likes of Nike, Coca-Cola, Toyota, Intel, the major game sponsors.
1: How do you anticipate the story will unfold next month when we get closer to the game's opening?
2: I personally, I think that maybe there's going to be a little bit of build up to the opening ceremony. It is possible that the US decides that it won't march in the opening ceremony or won't have its flag at the opening ceremony that's something that they could do if they wanted to escalate it a little bit but I think it's like any sporting event once the athletes start throwing themselves down snow hills at 100 miles an hour and they start playing ice hockey and they start skating and doing all the amazing things that they do people are largely going to forget about it and concentrate on what they're seeing on TV.
1: That's a good point, Josh. Um, Thank you so much for your time once again, and maybe we will uh, revisit this topic when we get closer to the game in January. Thank you. You are going to hear now from Sophie Richardson. She's the China director of Human Rights Watch. She's a vocal proponent of human rights and political reform in China and across Southeast Asia. And she's had a lot to say about the Olympics returning to China. What was your first response upon hearing about a diplomatic boycott announced by Joe Biden?
0: Well, especially because it's a diplomatic boycott happening specifically in response to crimes against humanity. We were very pleased to hear this. We've been making this argument for some time. The hard part is what comes next because it's imperative that the US and others who take this position continue to push back against crimes against humanity by insisting on or or organizing investigations with a view towards prosecutions. That's what happens. In reaction to human rights crimes, so it's a good start. There's still a lot of work to do. So, uh,
1: Beijing has announced that it doesn't care if the diplomats aren't coming. The zhujiao is about the athletes themselves. So, would you be pursuing a campaign to get the athletes to boycott the Beijing Olympics as well?
0: It's a great question. Uh, The reason we chose to argue for a diplomatic boycott is that athletes have unfortunately no say in where the games are held and the abuses that are taking place in China aren't the athletes' fault uh, and we did not feel that you know it was appropriate necessarily to you know to, to to punish them we think the better strategy is to use the olympics to bring attention to the chinese government's human rights crimes Deny it the political legitimacy it wanted as a host and make it a focal point for talking about holding Chinese government officials accountable, you know, for gross human rights violations. And it seems that a purpose has been achieved. Well, the first part has in that, you know, there are now already hundreds of stories around the world about these diplomatic boycotts. The hard work is organizing an investigation. We know that the United Nations uh, Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights has undertaken some research, uh, but is now peculiarly sitting on that rather than publishing it. And this is an assessment drawing on interviews with victims and other sources, You know, an assessment that will you know, document serious human rights violations in the region. But governments can come together and do that uh, either individually or collectively. We've seen you know, important uh, moral institutions like the United States Holocaust Museum publish its own assessment of the situation in Xinjiang. But there's a lot of hard thinking that has to go into how you would actually, for example, prosecute someone like Chen Tuan Guo But this is the thinking that has to take place. You know, the, the point here is to you know, make clear to the Chinese government that this is not just about reputational risks or an embarrassing loss about who will or won't show up to the opening ceremonies in February. It's about being held accountable under international law. No state is above the law. The Chinese government should not be an exception. And every day that goes by when people who are responsible for crimes against humanity are not investigated and prosecuted encourages them to keep doing it. You know, when we think back to the games in 2008, and the kinds of human rights violations we were talking about then. And you think about where we are now, you try to imagine you know, what might have been prevented if governments had been standing up and saying, I'm sorry, if you commit crimes against humanity, you will actually have to face a court someplace or there will be far more uh, pervasive sanctions or you will not be allowed to participate in major international diplomatic initiatives you know there has to be a consequence here uh, or else you know you know governments run the risk of of cheapening these positions they've taken
1: hmm. uh, can i ask you to take us through your announcement back in November asking the IOC's major corporate sponsors to explain their position on human rights in China.
0: We wrote to the top sponsors of the Games uh, earlier this year, back in the spring, in May. And essentially, we asked them a pretty straightforward question, which was about their own human rights due diligence The the United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights strongly encourage companies to go through and publish and exercise where they think about the human rights risks of their business operations. Uh, And this can take a lot of different forms, but essentially it asks companies, might your business be causing or enabling human rights violations? If so, how are you going to go about fixing it? And you know, this was the question we put to companies. Essentially, was have you performed this kind of risk assessment? Essentially, and we didn't get replies for a long time. We have, uh, you know, and then we're we're publicly very critical of the companies. Last month, we've had some discussions uh, with with some of them, but those have not been uh, satisfying in the sense that they do not explain how they have thought through these questions, or whether they would reconsider their sponsorship uh, because they've found problems. They haven't even started asking the right questions. And that's really problematic. But it's also why we're starting to see, for example, the European Union adopt binding legislation that makes these kinds of assessments requirements for companies. It's not going to be optional anymore for some of them, You know, because there is real concern that, well, you know, corporate executives will go out in public and say very pretty words about human rights and, you know, ESG policies. They are all the while continuing to do business in ways that can create or contribute to serious human rights violations like forced labor. Mm.
1: And would you be pursuing uh, consumer boycotts against the likes of Coca-Cola and the major sponsors?
0: Some of our friends in uh, the Coalition to End Forced Labor in the Uyghur region, which is a very large coalition of human rights groups, labor groups, groups that are focused on on, uh, the Uyghur region and other affected communities across the country, um, are doing work in that area. Uh, And I think it's important for people to realize that the shirts they're wearing could have been made by forced labor to ask questions about you know, whether the pension pension funds they're invested in may be involved with problematic tech firms inside the country, you know, or whether they want to use their power as consumers to buy products from the companies that are involved in sponsoring the games or whether they want to send a message saying that they find those positions, you know, unacceptable and you know, spend their money uh, in other ways.
1: Right. Um, can I move on to um, uh, can I get you to tell us more about the human rights strategy published by the IOC in December 2020? And <laughs> when would you when, when would that be implemented?
0: Well, the IOCs, the IOC likes to point out rightly that it has adopted new human rights policies and guidelines. But because those were adopted after Beijing was awarded this coming round of games back in 2015, those policies don't apply for the February 2022 games. Convenient, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't a coincidence. <laughs> you know. And so the net effect is that the games, or at least some of the first games for which those human rights standards will apply, You know, are in Paris and Brisbane and Los Angeles. Uh, uh, You know, none of which, let the record show, have perfect human rights records. But you know, last time I checked, authorities in Brisbane weren't committing, you know, gross human rights violations. You know, I think the IOC has has been slow to make these commitments on paper, Uh, but also, you know, just in the last couple of weeks, we have watched the IOC. Conduct itself with appallingly poor judgment. I mean, and I mean that both in the you know, basic common sense way, but also with respect to human rights in its engagement around um, you know, the, the, the Peng Shui case. You know, that, that, that Thomas Bach seems to want to keep telling us that he's fixed his dinner plans with Peng Shui rather than talk publicly about. And Olympians' credible allegations of rape is quite disturbing. And I know we've talked about this before,
1: you and I, uh, in our previous interviews about if quiet diplomacy still works. And this is a term that Thomas <laughs> Bach has been, you know, referring to even to this day. Um, can I also get you to comment about that as well?
0: Yeah, we've had long discussions over the years about what's wrong with quiet diplomacy, Um you know, a fair amount of the diplomacy that takes place every day is indeed quiet. You know, that's, that's you know, sort of the nature of the business. But what the, what the Chinese government wants is total silence globally. And we've known for a long time that governments that fall for that, uh, you know, are ineffective. And when we look back over the last 20 years, we think that it's been precisely giving in to Chinese government pressure, you know, to pull punches, to not raise issues publicly, has contributed significantly to the current government's sense that it can commit crimes against humanity and get away with it. You know, so the fact that, that, that Thomas Bach even thinks it's sensible to say that publicly, I think it's just an, another indicator, and he's given us many... Uh, of just how out of touch he and the IOC are.
1: That's all for this week's edition of Inside China. As I mentioned with Josh Ball, there's much more to come on this as different countries across the world are still deciding on their involvement in the Beijing Winter Olympics. You will get the latest at the South China Morning Post website at scmp.com. I'm Mimi Lau, a correspondent at the South China Morning Post. You can also find me at Twitter at GZMimi. Mimi. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.